Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's featured preacher is Billy Graham. Listen as he preaches on the Old Testament prophet Amos and the message, Prepare to Meet Your God, as he comes in judgment. a tremendous survey of the work of the Home Mission Board tonight. All of us have been challenged by what we have heard. And now as we leave this convention in a few minutes, we are going to be going back to our states, our communities, our associations, our churches, to accept this challenge of winning 600,000 people to Christ this coming year. We have increased 34% in the last 10 years, and the churches of the whole world are beginning to study Southern Baptist, and they're asking, what makes this denomination grow? I always answer, there are many factors, but there are at least two. One, we have accepted this book as the authority, and we believe in the authority of the Scriptures. We believe that these Scriptures have been inspired of God, and that this is God's message to the world. Secondly, we have kept warm evangelistically. And if we ever lose our faith and confidence in the Scriptures, and if we ever lose the warm fervor of evangelism, this denomination will begin to die also. Now tonight I want you to turn with me to Amos, the fourth chapter and the twelfth verse. Every preacher here has preached on this text. And so some of you don't need to turn. You already know it by heart. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God. Prepare to meet thy God. I want you to get the picture. In the north was Israel. In the south, was Judah. Jeroboam was the king in the north, and Uzziah was the king in the south. And one day there was a man plowing in his field. He was a herdsman. He watched the sheep, or the goats as the case may be. And then to help his little family along financially, he dressed sycamore trees. He was a herdsman, and he was a dresser of sycamore trees. And one day the Spirit of God spoke to him and called Amos, not a preacher, but a layman. And it does good for preachers to sit back sometimes and listen to the layman. All the apostles were laymen. There were no professional preachers among them. And Amos was a layman. God called this rough herdsman to go into the north country, into Israel, 
and preach a message of justice and judgment. And Amos left his watching of the flocks and this great rugged sun-tanned giant of a man came suddenly out of the south, walked into Bethel where the king's chapel was, and he said, I want to see the king. And Amaziah, the high priest, looked him up and down and said, why, you're no preacher. Why, you've never been to seminary. You've never been to our university. Where are your degrees? What is your authority? Amos said, my authority is the word of the living God, and I've come to bring a message to Israel. And Amaziah laughed. Because, you see, Israel was living in a time of peace and prosperity. Never before had Israel had such a long time of peace, and never had they been so prosperous. They had an affluent society. They had arrived. And everyone had plenty of money. Everyone was prosperous. They had social security from the cradle to the grave. Everything was taken care of. They didn't need Amos the prophet. And Amaziah laughed and said, Go back down to those farmers. Go back to the mill town. But don't come up here to the big city and tell us how to do but Amos pushed Amaziah out of the way and stalked into the king's chapel and delivered his burning, flaming message that he had received from God out in the desert. And the message of Amos is a message that America needs tonight. We have reached the point of affluency. We are the most prosperous nation in the world. And until the last few days, we were almost asleep. We thought that the communists had changed their spots. We thought that communism could be dealt with just like Mr. Chamberlain thought he could deal with Nazism at Munich. And when Mr. Chamberlain came back from Munich, they flew through flowers in the street. Great crowds gathered and shouted their acclaim because peace in our time had come at Munich. Within a year, Germany and Britain and the world was plunged into the bloodiest war of history. And the scripture warns that when they say peace, 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 then cometh sudden destruction. This was a period of peace. And Amos came pronouncing his judgments you can imagine how unpopular he was to talk about war and destruction and judgment and to warn the people when everything was going so well. But Amos delivered his message. Outwardly, everything seemed to be all right. But the God who sees the heart saw the cancer within. Some time ago, I played golf with a Presbyterian minister. He looked healthy and fine. Six months later, he was dead. He did not know at that time that we had our golf match that he had a cancer gnawing within that was to kill him within six months. Neville Shute wrote a book entitled On the Beach. And in that book, one of his characters says, maybe we've been too silly to deserve a world like this.
I'm convinced that regardless of the outward appearance of prosperity within the corporate life of America today, there is present a form of moral and spiritual cancer which can ultimately lead to our destruction unless the disease is treated and the trend is reversed. Thomas Huxley said in a speech at John Hopkins University in 1876, I cannot say that I'm in the slightest degree impressed by your bigness or your material resources as such. Such is not grandeur. Territory does not make a nation. The great issue about which hangs a true sublimity and terror of overhanging fate is, what are you going to do with all these things? The President of the United States appointed a committee recently to study the aimless attitude of Americans and he called it a commission on national goals. In other words, we Americans have arrived. Where do we go from here? What is our basic philosophy of life? Can we stand up against a disciplined, dedicated communism? 50,000 young Russians in Red Square stamping their feet and saying, we are going to change the world. We are going to change the world. We are going to change the world. To go to the University of Moscow and see their dedicated faces. To see 10 million Russians studying English. To study communism. It has a philosophy. It has a missionary organization that circles the globe. And in 40 years, they have almost evangelized the world. How did they do it? They have taken a lie and done more in 40 years to reach the world than we have with the truth in 2,000 years. Dedicated, disciplined, self-denial, cross-bearing, these communists are challenging the Christian church as it has not been challenged in 2,000 years. What was the message of Amos? When you read the book of Amos, or any of these Old Testament prophets, it seems as though they're speaking about our time and our day. And the message of Amos could well apply to 1960. First, it was a message concerning social problems. Christ taught us that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Christ said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul. That is the vertical aspect of the gospel. Justification by faith. I come to the cross as a sinner. I see Jesus Christ dying on that cross and shedding his blood for my sins. I come in repentance of my sins by faith and receive him as my Savior. My sins are forgiven. My name is written on the book of life. But then Jesus didn't stop there. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. But then he said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the great problem facing the world tonight is this. How can I love my neighbor as myself? How can I love the yellow man? How can I love the black man? How can I love the man that is different from me? How can I love people who act strangely and live differently and on different social levels than myself? How can we make the world a brotherhood? That is the burning question. The question of our time is not economic. The question of our time is anthropological. What about man? 
The H-bomb is not the problem. They had a rally in Madison Square Garden last night in New York. Mrs. Roosevelt, Walter Ruther, Alf Landon, Norman Thomas, and others spoke. They missed the point entirely. The problem is not the H-bomb. The problem is with the man who pulls the trigger. And you'll never change the world till you've changed men. And Jesus said, ye must be born again. And until men and women have been born again and the Prince of Peace lives in their heart, there will not be any permanent world peace. Because as long as you have hate and greed and jealousy in the world, you're going to have war in the world. Because war is a reflection of the war within the souls of men. Amos said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself in principle. And he spelled it out. He warned against being at ease in Zion. Madam Pundit said some time ago, You Americans cannot go always driving Cadillacs while the rest of the world drives ox carts. Six percent of the population of the world, which is America, own half of the world's money and wealth. Our average income in America is $2,800 per person, while the average income in Asia is $50, where one-half of the population of the world lives. Three-fourths of the population of the world will go to sleep tonight on a dirt floor. They don't even have wood on the floor, no cement on the floor, nothing on the floor except dirt. Three-fourths of the world's population. They don't have the barest essentials. They see our movies. You can go to any jungle in the world and somewhere out in that jungle, it may be a brush arbor, there is a motion picture projector and there is a screen of some sort and even primitive peoples are watching American movies and they're seeing our wealth and our luxury and they're beginning to say, I want some of that. And unless we're willing to share our wealth with the rest of the world, Dr. Frank Lawbach said the other day, if we are not willing to share our wealth, we have only got two years. There's a deadening effect about prosperity. It is more dangerous to the church than persecution and depression. And Amos also warned about peace when there was no peace. Christ warned that there would be wars and rumors of wars till the end of time. And while we are to work and pray for peace, yet as long as man's heart is unchanged, we are to expect war. And that's the reason the prophet Joel said, Proclaim ye this among the people. Prepare war, make up the mighty men, beat your plowshares into hooks and your pruning hooks into spears. In other words, Joel was saying what Theodore Roosevelt said a few years ago. He said... Speak softly, but carry a big stick. He was saying that to nations whose hearts had not been changed. President Eisenhower arrived home this afternoon to one of the biggest receptions Washington has given anybody in a long time. I watched him on the television screen. He looked like a man that was disappointed. 
He looked like a man whose dreams had suddenly been shattered. He looked tired. It seemed to me that there were tears in his eyes and it seemed on one occasion he almost choked up as he stood there and told the people who had come to receive him how the summit conference had been broken and shattered. And he said, it's a mystery. He said, I don't understand it. In the last few months, the world thought we were on the verge of peace. And now the nations are shouting at each other again. The Archbishop of Canterbury said, it may be God's will to allow man to destroy himself by war. I don't think so. I think God is still on the throne. And God is still in control. And I believe the scripture teaches that he will not allow Satan to go any further than God allows him to go as he dealt with Job. But I tell you this, there is plenty of scripture to support this that God may allow godless, atheistic Soviet Russia or communist to bring judgment on this country. God allowed the king of the Chaldees to come down and destroy Jerusalem, destroy his people because his people refused to repent and turn to God. Yes, Amos warned he warned about racial discrimination. He warned about selling slaves and forgetting their brotherly covenant. The Negro in America today is restless. Something is happening in the Negro that the Southern white has not yet awakened to or realized. He is a different Negro than he was 10 years ago. And there's no use ignoring the problem and putting our head in the sands and saying it doesn't exist. We hope it'll go away. It won't go away. It's here to stay. And we better face it. What to do about it? I know that all of us don't agree. And I never judge a man's faith in Christ solely on the basis of his attitude on a social matter which is so complicated and emotional as the race problem. But in Southern Baptist work, we have a warm relationship with the National Baptist Convention and we work hand in hand with them. And there are people who are deeply concerned. What can we do? First, I said this in Little Rock, Arkansas, first, we can obey the law. I have studied this book and I can find no place in Scripture that any Christian has a right to disobey any law, however distasteful, unless it interferes with your worship of God. Then we have a right to obey it because God's law is above man's law. Secondly, we can go out of our way to be courteous and kind and gracious to people of the other race. We can love them on a personal basis. We can go to the man next door, let him know that we truly love him. Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and who is thy neighbor? 
Jesus said, the Samaritan, he gave the story of the Samaritan, and that was a lesson in race relations. And this convention, having almost as many members as all other denominations in the South put together, can help lead the way in better race relations in the South by love and understanding. This problem's not going to be solved in one year, five years, ten years, twenty years. It's here for a long time. We have a long process ahead of us, and I do not pretend to know all the answers, but I know in Christ there is an answer. And I know that whatever our opinions, we are to love each other. And if we don't have love, the Scripture says, we cannot be the children of God. And then Amos had a message on deteriorating morals within Israel. When someone asked Hetty Hopper the other night what was wrong with the movie, she said they are going to the dirt and the mud for their stories. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a planned satanic attack on the morals of America that is threatening our security more than Mr. Khrushchev. The emphasis today on sex is the most unnatural thing since the days of Rome. It has destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It has destroyed nations of the past. And it's going to destroy this country unless the trend is reversed. We heard some statistics here the other afternoon at the pastor's conference that were unbelievable. One theater manager of a drive-in theater said on Saturday and Sunday night in his theater, he estimated that 75% of the cars, they had sexual relations in that car. The number of young people in the United States in high school and college and university that are involved in sex relations is so, so startling that it shatters us. And here is the thing that shakes us the most. Thousands of them are members of our churches. Because Satan is using the avenue of sex to destroy the morals of this country and so weaken us. This is reaching into business, integrity into business. The nation has suddenly been awakened to the fact that chiseling and cheating are acceptable in our business life. Moral shortcuts are permissible. Moral compromise and vacillation are the rule. We have become preoccupied with pleasure and amusement, cheating and lying and stealing on every side. We are spending three times as much for alcohol as we are for religion. We are spending two times as much for tobacco as we are for religion. There are more drug addicts in the United States than any Western country in the world. Our drug addicts are increasing at the rate of 1,000 a month, and 13% of them are under 21 years of age. 
and the nation is spending more time by far watching television than they are reading the Bible and praying. Amos also had a message about spiritual hypocrisy because you see the scripture says when he gave his message the places of worship were jammed. Gilgal, Bethel were filled. People filled them to worship God. Religion had enjoyed a great revival numerically. But they were indifferent to the sins within the churches. They had forgotten God's blessings of the past. They had intimidated the prophets not to preach the truth. They did not want their dull conscience to be disturbed. And God loathed their services. He had no use for their festivals and rich offerings. It was a mockery to him. It was all foreign to him. He said, away with your feast days. Away with your church services. There are stench in my nostrils. Jesus said, if any man will follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Every time the crowd got too big, Jesus eliminated about half of them by saying, Are you ready to die on a cross? Are you ready to deny yourself? We have been presented a program for next year to win tens of thousands of people in America. Last night I heard one of the greatest sermons on missions I ever heard in my life from Baker James Coffin. And I have been to most of the countries where we have missions. And I have the privilege of being on the Foreign Mission Board and my heart is in missions. But I tell you this, I believe one of the greatest mission fields in America, in the world today, is America. This is a mission field with millions of people outside the church and millions of church members that never tithe, rarely go to church, never go to prayer meeting, and never win another soul to Christ. To millions, the church practically means nothing. No regularity of attendance at church worship, no sacrificial giving, no personal religious discipline, and many churches are going along with apparent success, but with actual failure. We need today to reach the present membership. I always think of Judas. Judas was in Jesus' church for three years and he was treasurer of Jesus' little church. But when the chips were down, Judas had never been converted. Three years, the other disciples didn't know it. Why, he taught a Sunday school class. He cast out demons. He preached. He was the treasurer. He lived closer to Jesus than any of us in physical contact. And yet Judas never really knew Jesus. And it's possible to teach a Sunday school class. It's possible to go to church. It's even possible to stand in the pulpit and not know Jesus. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many shall say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And he will say to them, Depart from me, ye cursed, I never knew you. When we stand before the great judgment of God, what is he going to say to you? What should a dedicated, consecrated church member do? 
first of all, he should tie his money to the church. Do you give 10% of your income to the church? Do you? How many of you do? Keep your hand down. Oh, wait a minute. I saw a couple of fellows getting ready to lift their hand. Do you? Does 10% of your income go to the church? And then in addition to the 10%, do you give an offering? You've never given an offering until you've paid your tithe. The tithe belongs to the Lord. Don't you come to God and say, Oh God, I'm consecrated to you. I'm trying to live a Christian life. And all the time you're robbing God and you wonder why your prayers are not answered. You wonder why there's a barrier when you come to pray. You wonder what's standing between you and God. You wonder what's happening to your cold heart. Why you don't have a glowing testimony like these that have testified tonight. And all the time you're robbing God. And even if you don't get, you young people don't get but a dollar a week allowance or five dollars a week or whatever you get, you ought to learn from childhood that ten cents out of every dollar belongs to the Lord. And a consecrated, dedicated church member will be in church every time the church doors are open, and that includes prayer meetings. You can tell how spiritual a church is sometimes. Just go to prayer meeting. Brother, I'll tell you when they call a prayer meeting. Not many show up, but you announce that you're going to show a film in color. Or you announce you're going to have a big supper and the crowd comes. I wonder if that's not what Amos is talking about. Away with your feast days, he said. What about your hearts? What about your prayer? Where has the old prayer meeting gone? How little praying there is. And a consecrated, dedicated church member will win souls. How many souls have you won? Do you know how many deacons we have in the Southern Baptist Convention? I may be wrong, but I've been told we have at least 150,000. Do you know how many souls those deacons alone, not counting Sunday school teachers, not counting people, how many of those deacons would have to win this year to get our goal of 600,000? They would only have to win one every three months or less. Think of it now, a deacon that is consecrated to the office of deacon not even winning a soul to Christ. And Sunday school teachers, do you know how many Sunday school teachers we have? 700,000 Sunday school teachers. If every Sunday school teacher just won one person this year to Jesus Christ, we'd oversubscribe our goal. And then what about studying the Bible and praying? How many of you have an hour every day with God in prayer and study of the Scriptures? Oh, you've got an hour every day with a Western on television. You've got that hour all set. You wouldn't miss that. What do you think God thinks about us? Looking at us, got our name on a church roll, call ourselves Baptists, and he sees us every night biting our fingernails off watching television. Never opening the scriptures, never spending time in prayer, never going to prayer meeting, 
and spending most of our money for pleasure and amusement and the things of this life and never sacrificing a dime for the kingdom of God. God says away with that hypocrisy. It's a stench in my nostrils. What do we need? We need today a revival within our churches. And secondly, we need every member of our churches to become evangelist. Dr. Sam Moffat said that when the communists came into China, that every soldier was a communist missionary. As soon as they produced a convert, he became an evangelist. As the soldiers rolled over us, the communist missionary underground came out of hiding and staged the most intensive evangelistic campaign that I've ever seen. Their meetings lasted from early in the morning until after midnight, packed with emotion and drama and directed to just one end, conversion to communism. After the meetings came the study groups. Evangelism and education fused and integrated into one sharp tool for missions. It was an avalanche that struck us, an avalanche of communist missionary attack. Brethren, the communists are doing it. They're out dedicating us. What are we going to do? Are we going to go back to our homes? The convention's been a success. We've heard wonderful statistics, glowing reports. Everybody's been keyed up. We've been taken to the heights. Are we going to go home and do business as usual? Are we going to go back to the valley, back to live the same old life in the same old rut in the same old way until convention time next year when we come and get recharged again for a few days? Oh, are we going to say to God tonight, I'm willing to deny myself and take up the cross. And I'm willing to go back and live the kind of life that Christ would have me to live. And I'm going to exemplify the gospel I proclaim and profess. I'm going to go back. Because you see, Amos said this. Judgment is coming. And in 50 years... Israel was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed. Who would have believed it? Samaria was destroyed. Who would have believed it? Well, today, events that moved 50 years ago, took 50 years, moved that fast in a week today. And I say to you this, that judgment is on the way to this country. And I say it from a broken heart. I say it from a heart that has wept over America and loves America. And I would die for the American flag. But I tell you from the bottom of my heart, in the night I can see it. I can feel it. Howard Butt told me the other day that he's built a new home in Corpus Christi. And he said, even as I was building it, I saw way off somewhere in something I cannot articulate or explain, I saw its destruction. I have felt the same thing. I do not know whether it will be this year or next year or five years or ten years or twenty years or a hundred years or a thousand years, but I know that no nation 
that has ever had such blessings upon it as America and has committed the sins that we have committed can withstand the judgment of God. God is going to judge us. Perhaps we cannot see the clouds of judgment now, but they're on the way. And in the first chapter of Romans, God uses an expression that frightens me three times. He says, God gave them up. Think of it. The people had gone so far in sin that God gave them up. There was a time when you would tell a lie. Your conscience would bother you. Now you can tell a lie looking a person straight in the face and your conscience doesn't even bother you. There was a time if you had those evil thoughts that you now entertain in your mind, your conscience would burn you, but now your conscience no longer speaks and you can let your imagination run riot and it thinks these evil things continually and the scripture warns against evil imagination. There was a time when you would take a shortcut in business and your conscience would bother you. Now you can chisel and cheat and look for the loopholes and the corners to cut, and it doesn't even bother you. You can get angry and have hatred in your heart, and it doesn't bother you. God gave them up. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone, God said. He that hardeneth his heart, being often reproved, shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. God says, my spirit will not always strive with men, and God today in America is striving with us. And God is striving with you here tonight. God is saying to you, repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Come to my son and rededicate your life. Come to my son and receive him as Lord and Savior. But you do not do it. Your heart has become hard. And you do not receive him as your Lord and Savior. And so he says, because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but ye have said it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning of the way of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. There's going to come a day when America will call on God. But he'll not hear it. We will seek God but we'll not find him. It'll be too late. The scripture says, till there was no remedy. And that is true in your life. Tonight the Spirit of God is speaking to you even while I talk. And you know that as a Christian, you have not lived like a Christian. You have not been dedicated and surrendered. You have not denied self and taken up the cross. You have not lived the Christian life. You have not applied the Christian gospel in areas where it hurt. It would hurt you to have to tithe your money. It would cost you something to have to go to church every Sunday and every Wednesday night. 
It would cost you something to apply Christ in race relations. That's where it cuts. That's where it hurts. But that's the gospel. It hurts. It cuts. It demands in Nigeria, your missionaries, your missionaries, are preaching to those people that they have to give up their polygamy when they come into the church. And most of those people have two and three and four wives. Can you imagine the tremendous revolution that it takes place in a man's life to come to Jesus Christ in Nigeria when he has to change everything he's ever known and be kicked out of his home many times and out of his tribe and every security he's ever known to come to Christ? I tell you, those people will be on the front row of heaven. Christ always said it cost something, and that's the reason on the day of Pentecost, out of the thousands that followed him and heard him, only 120. Because you see, it costs too much to follow Jesus. And we can sit in our plush pews in air-conditioned churches and sing, Oh, how I love Jesus, and it doesn't get any farther than the sea ceiling unless we're actually living it and doing it. But in the end of Amos, there was one more message. There was a, in the latter part of Amos is a streak of sunshine. He warns the people to prepare to meet your God, indicating there's still a chance. He calls on the people to repent before it's too late. He was the last prophet to Israel. God tonight is calling on you to repent of your sins your waywardness, your backsliding before it's too late. Before judgment comes, before God strikes, there's still time. Will you say to God that this year, by God's grace, I'm going to live for him? By God's grace, I'm going to be a soul winner. By God's grace, every day this year, I'm going to try to speak to somebody about Christ. By God's grace, I'm going to go back and work in the churches I've never worked before. But there are many of you here tonight that have never really received Christ as your Savior. Your name may be on a church roll, but you've never really known him. You've never come to him as your Savior and Lord. And if you died right now, you would be lost. Tonight, right now, you can repent of your sins and receive him and trust him. And before you leave here, your life can be transformed and changed because you see it's a supernatural act of the Spirit of God. When you receive him, he comes into your heart and changes you and gives you a new capacity to live the Christian life. I'm going to ask every head bowed, every eye closed. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I wonder how many people there are here tonight will say, Billy, I'm not sure if I died I'd go to heaven. I'm not sure my sins are forgiven. I'm not sure that I'm ready to meet God. I want to be certain that Christ lives in my heart and tonight I want to receive him as my Lord and Savior right now. I want him to change my way of living. I want him to change my life. And if I've never been really converted, I want to be converted tonight. 
If I've never really been born again, I want to be born again tonight. If I'm not prepared to meet God, I want to prepare to meet him tonight. I'm not going to ask you to come forward tonight. But I am going to ask you to lift your hand way up and hold it there a moment. And then we're going to pray. Just lift it way up right now. Yes. Scores of people everywhere. I'm going to ask all of you that are lifting your hand just to stand where you are. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but I am going to ask you to stand up right where you are. You're not sure that Christ really lives in your heart. You're not certain that your sins are forgiven, but you want to receive him right now in your heart and life. Just stand up and keep standing before we pray. There's something about doing it publicly like this that settles it and seals it. That's the reason Jesus said, if you're not willing to confess me before men, I'll not confess you before my Father which is in heaven. That's the reason that almost everybody he called, he called publicly. Because when you commit yourself publicly like this, it does something. We're going to wait a minute. You may be a member of some church. You may not be a member of any church. But you want to be sure that Christ lives in your heart tonight. You want your sins forgiven. You want to know you're going to heaven. Just stand up where you are before we pray. Yes, yes, yes. Many people are standing. We're going to wait. People are still continuing to stand. Just stand up where you are. Now I'm going to ask the rest of the congregation who will say, I know Christ is my Savior. I am a Christian. I'm sure of it. But I want this to be a night of rededication. I want to live for Christ from this moment on. I want to change some of the ways of, in my life. I want to become a disciplined, dedicated Christian. God helping me, I want to live all out for Christ. And I'm going back to my home and back to my church to work and pray and give and win souls as never before. I want all of you to stand with these that are standing. Almost everybody ought to stand. Now, while our heads are bowed, there are 16,000 people here tonight. There are many times more people here tonight than there were on the day of Pentecost. And that 120 changed the world of their day. These 16,000 can change America if we really meant it. And it's my prayer that the Spirit of the living God will take charge of us tonight and send us back as missionaries in our community and in our homes and in our areas. And you that stood to receive Christ, you go home tonight, get on your knees beside your bed and pray, Oh God, I receive you into my heart and life. And then get up, and on Sunday morning you go to church. Seek out a minister and talk to him about it, and he will help you and lead you.
You've been listening to Dr. Billy Graham on Faith of Our Fathers. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.